So I visited the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. recently. It got me thinking about cathedrals. It also got me thinking about Episcopalians. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Press Club C Podcast. I'm Ray Keating. In this 106th episode, we're going to talk about the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., cathedrals in general, and the Episcopal Church. But before we start, a quick reminder on what the Press Club C actually is about. Each letter stands for stuff we talk about. P is for politics. R is for religion, mainly Christianity. E is for economics. S is for sports. Uh, That second S is for stories, books and writing, my own books, other books, fiction, nonfiction, reviews, author interviews, and so on. Uh, C is for culture, pop culture and otherwise. L is for life, the big catch-all. U is for understanding, lessons in history, education, economics, and so on. B is for business and entrepreneurship. And that last C in Press Club C is for conservative. Why? Because I am one. And as I've said before, we have to be very clear as to what kind of a conservative we might be these days. I'm a Reagan, Kemp, Buckley, Coolidge, Lincoln, Madisonian kind of conservative. So let's get to our topic for today. Um, I'm a cathedral guy. I love beautiful churches. I love beautiful cathedrals. Uh, Sacred spaces, I think, are of significant, are of significance, and they are a significant um, tool of the church, if you will, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, Architecture and art matter uh, to the faith and to the church. These are means, additional means for us to communicate the good news, to teach, right? Holy Scripture, teach the Bible, and so on. Um, And that's what they do at their very best. Uh, It's beauty and creativity in service of uh, the church. Now, of course, I understand that, you know, beautiful churches and cathedrals aren't possible or even desired for, you know, desired by all Christians. Um, And, you know, wherever we're gathered, there is Christ. But at the same time, again, sacred spaces uh, can and do matter. Um, Think about whether you're going to stroll into or maybe be in, feel like you're invited into, you know, a cinder block building that just, you know, um, has kind of a shabby parking lot <laughs> and compare that to, you know, a stone church that's quite beautiful with stained glass and so on. And that which... Which place is going to invite you in and perhaps engage you uh, in a way, right? And I think that is important. Um, And, you know, this leads to my visit recently to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. By the way, the official name of the cathedral is the Cathedral Church of St. Peter and St. Paul. I visited several times before, you know, I work, I visit Washington a lot for my work. I haven't in the last few years during the, for the due to the pandemic. So I had the time after some work to shoot up to the cathedral and take a look around, which I always enjoy uh, doing. Now, it was kind of weird this time. 
Um, you know, it's a Gothic style cathedral after, you know, the cathedrals of Europe. And it is a, uh, a, a, a monument. Um, and it is a beautiful church, but it was kind of weird this time because there's, there are repairs going on and, uh, the church got hit hard by, uh, the, there was an earthquake in the Northeast in 2011 and repairs are still going on with that. And you could see that when you were there, it was very, it was kind of strange, a little bit of a letdown. You know, when I first came in, uh, they charge you by the way, just to <clears throat> stroll around the church now, which they never used to do. So I paid whatever the ticket price was. Um, and I asked about now, if you've never been to the national cathedral down downstairs below the main floor, there's always a, there's been a, always, there had always been a beautiful bookstore. It offers wonderful books, uh, artwork. I have, um, things that I bought in that bookstore hanging in my office in my home. Uh, but it's been closed. You know, I asked the guy, is, is the bookstore open? And he said, no, it's been closed since, uh, since the pandemic, since before the pandemic. So I was like, oh, that's, that's unfortunate. But he said, but we have a few items and a little glass case. He pointed across the, little, the hallway to me and I was like, wow, that's, if you had been to that bookstore and you look now at this tiny glass case, that was, that was sad to say the least. Um, so that was kind of my first like, hmm. And then walking around, um, the outside, there was a lot of, uh, obviously, uh, material waiting to be used for repairs. Um, and then even on the inside, there were things that were kind of oddly kind of parked <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, so you got the feeling that, uh, you know, it's like, okay, there are thing repairs going on, which need to be done. Um, there are some changes, not changes, but you know, upgrades, whatever, but it all seemed to be in a, in a rather distressing state of, I don't want to overstate this, but there was this just little feeling of disrepair. Um, so it, it wasn't like the greatest visit for me to that building, but I still enjoyed it. And I, you know, took in, um, so much of the, the beauty that is there in terms of the artwork and from statues and altars to stained glass windows to the, 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 the build, you know, the carvings inside and outside. So again, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't a, a good, wonderful experience. So, um, the cathedral has, uh, it's also got a weird, you know, it's been around the, the cornerstone, the process of building it started, I believe in 1907. Um, and it's, it's an interesting, um, building in Washington, DC. So I, I came across a Washington post article from September of 2022, where, uh, the national cathedral raises $115 million for earthquake repairs, uh, comma and, and its future. So that's, that's great. Um, if, you know, it's, they reference a, um, you know, the damage caused by an earthquake 11 years ago and this fundraising lay a firm, lays a firm foundation, uh, financial foundation for the future. So the cathedral's Dean now is the very Reverend Randolph, Randy Marshall Hollerith. Um, and he kind of captured the, 
the the strange go between state of this this cathedral. Um, here's the quote that he said. First and foremost, we are a church. We are an Episcopal church committed to the reconciling love of Jesus Christ. That being said, we also happen to be a monument in the sense of being one of the most beautiful and grandest buildings in Washington, D.C. And so we live and stand on that first piece that we're a church. Worship, music, prayer is fundamental to who we are. Being a monument is part of our stewardship, taking care of this beautiful place. So there's that balance, um, and I think that that was pretty well said uh, by uh, Reverend Holler, uh, Hollerith, um, and we're going to come back to him uh, for another thought that I liked from this piece. But so there is a strange thing, right? We we don't thankfully have a state church in America, yay, um, but we very much have, you know, uh, the church and our faith has always been very active, um, less so. And that's for another, another, um, another show, another episode, less so than in the past, but, um, we as Christians are free to spread the good news and also to bring our views that are informed by Holy scripture in the church, hopefully, uh, to the, into the public square. So that's all good stuff. And churches themselves can speak out where they find it necessary. Uh, that's another topic for another day. Um, but the Episcopal, so let, let's segue over from this beautiful building and Reverend Holler, Hollerith's comment that it is first a church. And that very much is true. And it's an Episcopal church. And that also, that raises you know, question, what, what's going on with the Episcopalians, right? Um, let me, let me backtrack though, for to say, before we get into what they're, um, what they're doing now, or what they're up to, or the state of the Episcopal church today, understand, you know, briefly that the, the history of the Episcopal church in America is really quite profound and fascinating, right? There, it, it shouldn't surprise anyone, anyone that the national cathedral is an Episcopalian church, right? Um, the Episcopal Church linked to the Church of England. Church of England goes all the way back to the very start of this country. Um, and I mean the very, very start of this country. And then, you know, when we get to American independence, the Revolutionary War, um, you know, it, it, you just, you don't have to do much research, right? Three quarters of the signers of the Declaration of Independence uh, were affiliated with the Episcopal Church, Um over a quarter of U.S. presidents have been Episcopalian. So you get the idea here. Here, um, Episcopalians always had a, a considerable amount of, you know, above average income. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, so they've been in very, very influential um, over the over our history, at least in terms of business um, and resources. Now, having said all that. Um, to say that the Episcopal Church has hit rough waters would be to understate matters in terms of recent times. So there's a wealth of information out there on this. You know, I, I found a piece by uh, Randy Burge um, at uh, Religion in Public, in Public Blog. Right now, uh, Mr. Burge uh, teaches political science at Eastern Illinois University. Okay. So he's really climbed inside the numbers. So let's just talk about this a little bit. First off, 
um, in terms of the decline of the Episcopal Church, um, there were, to give you broad numbers, at their peak, there were 3.4 million members of the Episcopal Church in the mid-1960s. Okay, that has come down to, if you look at 2019, you know, pre-pandemic, 1.6 million. So it's declined uh, by more than half. Now, let's get to some of his, Mr. Bur- Professor Burge's numbers. Um, he throws out, in 2009, 725,000 people attended an Episcopal church on an average weekend, right? Um, that declined to 547,000 by 2019. Um, what else can, there's, uh, other numbers here in terms of the decline of baptized members, but here, here's another way of looking at it, which I find fascinating. He writes in 1980, the Episcopal church reported 38,913 weddings by 1990 that had dropped to 31,815. So from almost 39,000 to just under 32,000 from 80 to 90. In 2019, that had declined to just 6,148. Yikes. Baptism of children. Um, 1980, there were over 56,000. By 2000, that dropped to 46,603. And by 2019, it was just 17,713. Wow. Um, Now, if you consider those numbers, it's striking. But here's something on the other side, which is fascinating. Oh, the other other point he says, and this is, the, the title of this piece, by the way, is The Death of the Episcopal Church is Near. Here's another point. One of the most troubling things about the future of the Episcopal Church is that the average number, average member is incredibly old. The modal age of an Episcopalian in 2019 was 69 years old. With life expectancy at around 80, we can easily expect at least a third of the current membership of the denomination to be gone in the next 15 to 20 years. That's problematic when membership had already plummeted for decades. And then, of course, combine that with those baptism numbers and wedding numbers, and you kind of go, yikes. Here's a weird thing, though. Money is not a problem for, <laughs> for Episcopalians. Remember I talked about how, how wealthy they were going back? Well, apparently they still are. Um, here's his point about this. In fact, the total amount of plate and pledge has actually risen from 2014 and 20, between 2014 and 2019. In 2014, the denomination received about $1.3 billion from their members. By 2019, that had increased by about $50 million. And he goes on to say that's surprising given that overall attendance and the tradition has declined during that same period. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty wild. Um, and then he asks the question out of this P, you know, out of these numbers, um, can a denomination continue when it has money, but no people? <laughs> well, that would seem the answer to me in terms of understanding what the purpose of the church, uh, to spread the good news, take care of the flock and so on. the answer would be no, but that, that future may be facing the Episcopal church. That's what he points out. Um, 
you know, he says when he looks at the uh, numbers from the Episcopal Finance Office, the de- denomination has $400 million in trust, $11 billion in a pension plan for retired clergy, and another $4.5 billion in assets held at the parish and diocese level. To put it bluntly, money is not the issue. Um, interesting, right? Uh, that That is a fascinating point, uh, to say the least, that money is not the issue for a, a church that is... Uh, declining dramatically. And and again, remember the Washington Post story. They raised $115 million for the National Cathedral. Now, that's been painfully slow, a painfully slow process in terms of repairing that. But it, um, it, it kind of fits, you know, the state of the Episcopal Church, right? Here we have the National Cathedral, one of the most, truly one of the most beautiful buildings in Washington, D.C., which is saying something. Um, they raised money to do these repairs, including on the main tower, um, from the effects of uh, the earthquake. And they're they're you know refurbishing and upgrading other parts of the the church buildings there and the facilities. That's all good, but it, it kind of fits the you know it kind of fits the Episcopalians because you say to yourself, um, okay, but who's you know who's going to church there? Um, and see, I think that question can be asked, obviously that question can be asked for, um, many Episcopal churches across the United States and understand, uh, part of the Exodus has been the, you know, the liberal revisionism that has taken over the Episcopal church in so many ways, so many distressing ways has led to, you know, um, parishes leaving, uh, the church, you know, going for the uh, the Anglican Church in North America, for example, has been set up as a more traditional church body. Anglican church body is an alternative to the Episcopal Church, and there are, I think, one or two others. So, um, so the Episcopal Church faces a lot of many, many problems. Uh, many of them created by themselves in terms of, you know, when I say revisionist or liberal, what we're talking about is a a a, uh, a turning away from Holy Scripture in certain areas, right? Um, and when you start doing that, that raises the whole question of, you know, is is the is Holy Scripture the inspired, real inspired Word of God, and so on? And and the Episcopals have raised all sorts of questions on that front. Um, now that brings us to I wrote a piece several years ago about C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis arguably was the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century, and he was a, he was an, he was a, um, an Anglican. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, Lewis died in 1963. So we talked about the Episcopal Church reaching its peak, uh, in the mid 1960s. Now the, the Church of England, uh, very much has had similar, gone down a similar path and had similar problems. Um, in terms of becoming a revisionist entity um, and tremendous, suffering a tremendous loss of membership and so on. Um, so here's what I wrote um, back, uh, going back a ways, about Lewis and how Lewis saw this coming. Okay, it wasn't like, 
this really came out of nowhere. Um, so let me read from this, this essay. When various churches reject fundamental morality and turn their backs on the authority of Holy Scripture and Christian tradition, what should we expect from the culture at large? The Anglican Church in Europe and the Episcopal Church in America serve as glaring examples. Some might wonder what Lewis, as an Anglican Christian himself, might think as the Anglican community rips itself apart in the early 21st century due to a rejection of traditional morality and orthodox Christianity by liberals within the church. We do not have to speculate, however. In 1959, Lewis raised grave concerns about, quote, a theology which denies the historicity of nearly everything in the Gospels to which Christian life and affectations and thought have been fastened for nearly two millennia, close quote. He predicted that if his church ceased to offer what has long been recognized as Christianity, many would simply look for another church where Christianity is taught. And if a person agrees with this different theology, quote, he will no longer call himself a Christian and no longer come to church. Close quote. Lewis powerfully concluded, quote, once the layman was once the layman was anxious to hide the fact that he believed so much less than the vicar, he now tends to hide the fact that he believes so much more. Missionary to the priests of one's own church is an embarrassing role, though I have a hard feeling that if such a mission work is not soon undertaken, the future history of the Church of England is likely to be short. Close quote. Lewis, of course, turned out to be right on target. At the time I wrote this, 46 years ago, he foresaw the devastation, 1959, let's put it that way, 1959, he foresaw the devastation to be wrought by what he called, quote, modern theology, close quote. And the struggle to maintain Anglicanism in Europe and America as substantively Christian traditionalists, fortunately, fortunately, and this is the positive aspect, can turn to one of their own, C.S. Lewis who ranks as the greatest defender of the Christian faith over the past century. So that's now think about that 1959. I mean, Lewis nailed it, right? <laughs> um, distressingly so, but he also, um, you know, the Holy spirit always offers hope and offers the means for us, for the, for the gospel to be spread. Um, but that is a powerful point that Lewis made about how embarrassing it is to do missionary work to your own clergy. <laughs> Yikes. Um, getting back to this point on cathedrals, and that's what I'll wrap up with. Um, now I know nothing about the, the theology of Reverend Hollerith and, uh, uh the, you know, the, the gentleman that, that is now the, um, uh, the cathedral's dean, but he, he raises a, an interesting point here. And I, there's something to this, again, going back to the idea of the purpose of beauty and creativity in the architecture and art of the church. Um, and this is what he said to the Washington Post. Although we're fundamentally a Christian church and Episcopal church, great cathedrals like this have this wonderful ability to be places of encounter with the holy, whether you're Christian, 
whether you're Jewish, whether you are agnostic, a seeker, you know, it creates space for those encounters. And that's very important to us that we reflect the nation in that way. Close quote. Now, I don't know if, you know, the way Reverend Hollerith thinks about what he said there necessarily aligns with, for example, what I would take that to mean. He's right. Fundamentally, he's correct. These sacred spaces do make a difference. Um, they invite people in and at the, listen, at their base, they say, wow, this is a beautiful, wonderful space. Why? Why is it here? What's it all about? And if it's, if that's what churches do, right? Beautiful churches and cathedrals do. Well, that's pretty darn valuable, I would say. Um, and I'll leave it on that note. Thanks for listening. Your feedback and suggestions are always welcome. Um, please check out my various endeavors and books. Uh, the Pastor Stephen Grant Thrillers and Mysteries. There are 17 of those now. The latest is Under the Golden Dome. And by the way, that's set uh, on and around the campus of the University of Notre Dame. And I touch on some of these ideas in that book. So please check out that book. It all started with Warrior Monk. Uh, the book before Under, before Under the Golden Dome was Persecution. Um, as I said, 17 thrillers and mysteries. I've also started a, a new historical fiction series. And the first book in that series is Cathedral, an Alliance of St. Michael novel. Um, the Lutheran Planner, the to-do list solution is something that you help you get organized and inspired. And you can buy that and start, you know, to start on January 1st. You can start anytime using that. And among my other nonfiction books, uh, I have a series, the Weekly Economist series. So you have the Weekly Economist, 52 Quick Reads to Help You Think Like an Economist, and The Weekly Economist 2, 54 uh, More Quick Reads, 52 whew, More Quick Reads to Help You Think Like an Economist. Uh, also check out Free Trade Rocks, 10 Points on International Trade, Everyone Should Know. Um, uh, and there are other books. Please, They're all available except for The Planner at Amazon.com in paperback and Kindle editions. Go over to Ray Keating online to get signed books, including that Lutheran player. Again, thanks so much for listening. Uh, again, I appreciate hearing from you. Uh, appreciate your feedback. Thanks and God bless.